0: You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio day. If you're with us this past week, we started a three-week journey through the book of Exodus. And my challenge for you as we are going towards Easter, next week is Easter Sunday, exciting stuff, is to see the book of Exodus as a template for your liberation, for your freedom, for your deliverance from God Himself. That the Exodus story isn't just something that happened in the past, but we see all throughout Scripture as the dominant image of what God wants to do with you and me and with His entire creation. It's a template. It's a model. Last week, we started with the cry. We begin with crying out to God for Him to intercede on our behalf. And you guys got in groups and prayed for God to heal and deliver and move in your life in different ways. This week, we move towards the second C word I'm using, which is the challengers. The challengers. It starts with a cry to God, but with this cry comes a resistance. There's challengers. There's other gods vying for our attention that seek to enslave and destroy us. Just like they did in the Exodus story. So if you have a Bible with you, would you open up to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. I'm going to set the stage for the passage today. Really, this sermon is going to cover from Exodus 3 all the way through to Exodus 11. But I'm just going to read this first section to set the stage for us and what we're going to see here. With Starting with the cry at the end of Exodus 2, but now the resistance that comes in Exodus 3. Alright, Exodus 3, starting in verse 1. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Verse 5, do not come any closer, God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed, remember chapter 2, verses 23-25, it's echoed here again, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. He hears his people's cries and he's concerned. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, this is where Moses is hesitant, right? He was a a fugitive murderer, wandering in the wilderness as a foreigner. And yet God now is going to use him as the main mediator between God and his people to liberate them. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. Hear that echo from the Great Commission. Lo, behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. This will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain Verse 15, and God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Notice here, as God gives his name, there's this level of intimacy with his people. He gives his name to Israel. Verse 16, Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what you have done done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt in the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at verse 18. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. And then this is key right here, verse 19. This is going to set the stage for the rest of the narrative from Exodus 3 through 11 with this great resistance that Pharaoh is going to have. Verse 19, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So, I will stretch out my hand and I will strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. So, this is the setting of our story today as we move from the cry to the challengers. If you follow the narrative here from Exodus 3 forward, you see a bunch of plagues come upon the Egyptians. It starts first with the plague of turning the water into blood of the Nile. And Pharaoh again refuses to let Egypt, uh, the Israelites go. It moves from the plague of the water in the Nile to frogs, gnats, and flies invading the land, destroying livestock and agriculture and, and crops. And then there's boils that develop on human bodies. And then hail and locusts come from the sky destroying different things that it comes upon. And then the ninth plague is that darkness covers the entire land. There's ten plagues in all, and we're going to focus on that tenth plague next week for Easter. But these plagues are really specific. And the reason why they're specific is because they're challenging the dominant gods of Egyptian culture. Egypt as a culture worshipped created things. They worshipped different parts of agriculture, different planets, the sun and it's rays that it would shine. They worship all these different parts of culture, and so when Yahweh God, exerting his control over creation, begins to have these different plagues come upon Egypt, he's exerting that he is the creator God, and these gods that they have deified out of created things have no chance in his presence. In many ways, you could see the Exodus account from Exodus 3 through 11, the rest of the account, as a battle of the gods. Yahweh versus Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. That's what's happening here at the beginning of the Exodus story. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Romans chapter 1. I want to show you here from Romans 1, I think, what's happening uh, in Egypt and what we do with God's good creation. Romans 1, verses 18 through 25. I'm going to read this to you, and I'm going to give you three observations, three points from this passage in Exodus that I think is really showcased here in Romans 1, 18 through 25. It says this, Romans 1, 18 through 25, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been so clearly seen and understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Listen to this next verse here. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although... They claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Let's just pause there. Notice what's happening here in Romans 1. Humans like you and me take created things and make them God, just like what's happening in Egypt. Three things I want you to, to, to see from this passage in Exodus and then I'm going to translate it to how it might speak to us today. The first thing is this, idolatry is taking a good thing of God's creation and making it an ultimate thing. Idolatry is taking a good thing of God's creation, take whatever part of God's creation and then making it an ultimate thing. Here in the, in the story of the Exodus, Egypt had seen all of these good things of God's creation. Different parts of agriculture, the sun, the different things that they could make civilization out of, and they had made them ultimate things. This is what happens in our own hearts as well. We take the good things of God's creation and make them ultimate things. The second thing I want you to see is this: Disobedience hardens our hearts. Disobedience hardens our hearts. Now, I didn't read this passage, but if you read, and and hopefully you did at the beginning of this year, Exodus 4 through 11, you're going to see this pattern, and somebody on the group me that we do as as a reading plan together said, hey, what's the deal with Pharaoh's heart being hardened? If you notice in the passage, it starts out with Pharaoh hardening his heart against God, and then later in the account, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What do you do with that? Disobedience hardens hearts. Let me give you an example of, I think, how this plays out. My kids love to jump on the couch. They love to jump on the couch from one side of the couch to the next. So they're giggling and they're jumping and they jump from one side to the other side. And maybe the first time you'll say, hey guys, hey don't jump please. Like if you keep jumping, you're gonna fall off and you're gonna hurt yourself. But giggling, they continue on. The second time, okay I'm jumping, jumping, I'm gonna bounce to the other side. Guys, I just told you, please stop jumping on the couch. You're gonna get hurt. They continue again. Now, what do you have as a choice as a parent? You can say, okay, and this would be a right choice. I'm gonna grab my kid. Hey, you're not listening anymore. It's time for time out or you're gonna have a consequence of some sorts. I'm gonna remove you from the couch. Or you can say simply, okay, you guys have heard me say this twice. Let the consequences come to you, whatever they may be. Like, okay, go ahead, go for it. Keep jumping on the couch. And then with usually in a matter of moments, one kid misses, onto the ground, tears develop. And you're not like, oh, see, I told you. I do that sometimes. Keaton's a way better parent. But you get the point. I think as we are in God's world, God often gives us warning after warning of our hearts that are disobedient towards him. But after a certain amount of time, God sometimes delivers us from a really harm, harmful situation and actually rescues us before we fall off the couch. But sometimes, sometimes, I think it's like, okay, you've chosen to follow your own desires. You know that you have been warned are destructive. Like You're going to now face the consequences for whatever this leads you to. Our God's not manipulative or coercive. He's always invitational back to himself. But he's not going to force himself upon us. And here in the Exodus account, God has given invitation to invitation to Pharaoh to repent, to change his mind to not see himself as God, but to submit to the one true God of the universe. And Pharaoh refuses over and over again to do that. And over time, disobedience calluses and hardens our hearts. God's still waiting, inviting us back, and yet saying, okay, you can, you, you can continue. But like, I'm here and I'm waiting for you to come back and return. Disobedience hardens our hearts. And the last thing is this. Get ready for resistance. Get ready for resistance when you challenge the gods of our day or the gods of this day. Over the past year, in 2020, uh, churches across our state, in our country, and across the world had three challenges. I call them the triple threat of challenges. We had the beginning of the year, coronavirus. Coronavirus. And with coronavirus came a bunch of different opinions. We're either being too cautious or not cautious enough. you either really pro-mask, maybe you wear five masks, or you don't believe in mask at all. You're speaking too much about it. You're not speaking about it at all. It's back and forth all the time. Well, we thought coronavirus was the biggest challenge of 2020. Well, we were wrong because when the summer came, George Floyd was killed. And now all of a sudden, the conversation of racism picks up. And now the second thing, hey, you're speaking too much to racism or not enough. You're speaking it too liberally or too conservative to it. Everything is critiqued. The church, while oh, they're, they're not doing it the right way. Another challenge that seeked, sought to threaten and to destroy and divide our church. And then after the racism conversation, like, okay, we can catch our breath. Let's continue to press into that, but let's move on. Oh, then we had a presidential election in November of last year. And again, either you're talking too much like one can or the other, you're pushing too hard against one thing or the other, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And let me just say this, I am sure within our congregation there's things that I have not heard that you're frustrated about or critiques that you have to make about how we went through each of those things, but I am just so thankful that as a congregation we are still alive and we're still a church pressing in with one another into this new year in light of those three things that seriously sought to threaten, destroy, divide, and in a sense capsize our church. But with each of those things, what happens and what makes people angry is the gods of whatever we believe, regardless of political ideology, regardless of what we hold to most dearly, are revealed. One of the things I've been trying to do over the last year is try to recapture in many ways a biblical vision of justice. And so I spent a lot of time with Dr. King and his vision of nonviolence and and reconciliation through the, the beginning of the civil rights movement. What's really interesting, if you follow King's life, in the last year of his life, on April 4th, I think it's 1967, he began speaking against the war in Vietnam, and immediately his rating of approval, going from America's beloved to America's betrayer, went up all the way to 75%. When he died, 75% of Americans disapproved of Martin Luther King. Now, regardless of what you think of the Vietnam War, what King was doing was he was challenging the narrative that was being told. He was challenging some of the gods of our culture and therefore he was met with resistance. He was met with resistance because the things we love the most, the things we serve the most, the things we orient our life around the most, when they're challenged in some way, we want to fight against it similar to what's happening here as the gods of Egypt are being challenged in the Exodus story. So here's my question for you. I want you to process with some people around you. What are the main gods of our culture today? So in the Egyptian culture, God is in a sense challenging the main gods of that culture, the things that people oriented their life around. What about us in our culture? What are the gods of our culture that if we were to challenge or resist in some way, it would come with great consequence. All right, so turn to the people around you and then we're going to talk together and I'm going to outline some gods that I see in our culture and how we might resist them. All right, turn to the people around you. What are the gods of our culture? What are the things that we worship? All right, if you could jump back with us. I'd love to hear just a couple of you share. You can just share briefly what's a god of our culture that you find maybe your own heart susceptible to, to worship, to make an ultimate thing, to make a good thing of God's creation an ultimate thing. What do you guys think? Yeah, Roth. Personal fulfillment, yes. Absolutely. What else? Yeah, David. Uh, Independence, yeah. Yeah some form of like a like a freedom or like a hey nobody tells me what to do kind of thing yeah 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 I'm gonna do it on my own yeah awesome I mean not awesome but you know what I mean (laughs) anything else Individualism. individualism so maybe even pairing with David like some form of hey the individual is the center of the story I'm the center of of my world and everything should bend to my wishes yeah what else Yeah, Stacia. Uh, I feel like they're all really represented by the three great three keys of politics, pop stars, and puppy videos. Nice. Politics, pop stars, and puppy videos. Yes. I, don't, I need to, like, think about the puppy video God thing, but there's definitely something there. The ability to tune out and, like, Yeah, yeah. Do you ever get stuck on YouTube sometime where you just went to watch one video and then you're like watching now five, six, seven, Oh, I just spent a whole hour watching all these cool videos that got my attention. Just going to continue to distract myself, but maybe a distractionism in some way. Anything else? Yep. That's okay. Yeah, life, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Technique? Technicism? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We live in a technique culture where we're always on the on the the prowl, in a sense, for the best and greatest technique. Whether it's in something we do, whether it's in our work, whether it's in a diet, like we're looking for the technique that will solve our problems, our life's problems. Really good. You guys are onto it. Let me give you three gods of our culture that I think have a grip on our lives and that if we're going to be a people that not only cry out to God for him to intercede on our behalf and he begins that work, these three gods are going to be challenged, have to be challenged in our own hearts for us to experience freedom, deliverance, and liberation. And with challenging any god comes resistance. We'll feel it in ourselves as well. Really, Lent is the season of trying to, to disarm the other gods vying for the attention of her heart. So let me give you three. And I'm going to give you each of these gods with a blessed rhythm. The blessed rhythms are blessed, listen, eat, speak, and Sabbath. These different rhythms that help form us as God's people and God's story. I'm going to give you a blessed rhythm or two to, in a sense to combat and to create some resistance against one of these gods of our culture. So if you're taking notes, you can do that and write those down as well. So the first rhythm is this. Or first, God is this, the God of consumerism. We talk about this one a lot, so I won't try to spend a ton of time on this, but I think it's really important because it's, in many ways, has pervaded all areas of human life. Consumerism is this, it's orienting your life around goods and experiences to find meaning and soothing. Consumerism. Uh, in 2008 and then in 2020, two of the economic crisis of our time... 2008, uh, when the housing crisis happened, this was kind of ground zero here in Arizona for people losing their homes and people going under. And then in 2020 with COVID, how many people lost their jobs? Millions and millions of people who lost their jobs. And both times, you hear this phrase over and over again, "We we need to stimulate the economy. 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 We need to find a way to get money into the hands of consumers so they can begin to stimulate the economy. Yes, pay for rent. Yes, get up on their mortgage. Yes, take care of their kids. All those things. Yes, good. But we also need money in the hands of the consumers so they'll buy things. For a moment, if Americans and our level of consumption were to drop off for a week and say, you know, we're not going to buy anything this next week, we would single-handedly collapse the world economy. We would collapse it. Now, I'm not trying to make a a statement about our economic system or anything like that. I'm just trying to note for you and me that we are driven by the consumptions of goods and experiences for our meaning and for our soothing. It drives us. Amazon has made it so easy. When I have any inkling of need or longing, within a matter of maybe 10 seconds, I can quickly pull out my Amazon Prime app. I can find the item. It already lined it up that my credit card saved all there. All I need to do is just do one click. And within maybe sometimes a couple of hours, it's at my front door. Like the longing and waiting and wanting we see in the Psalms of God to intervene and for God to be our provider. We don't need that anymore. We just have Amazon. And Amazon takes care of us. It's forming us in some way. It's shaping us to be and see the world through a consuming experience. From our relationships to how we make decisions in life, it's been shaped by this God. So if the God of consumerism seeks to enslave and destroy us, like what do we do in light of that? You can't just tomorrow decide you're not going to buy anything because you need stuff to live. Remember, idolatry gods are good things of God's creation that have been distorted by sin and made into an ultimate thing. So here are the two blessed rhythms this week. I want to challenge you to practice. It's the first one and the last one. The first one is this to bless. If you want to, in a sense, push against the, the, the God of consumerism, you need to develop a rhythm of resistance of blessing others, of being generous towards others, of using your resources and your time for the good of others, not for yourself. What would it look like this weekend? Maybe even the simplest of ways, like in the Starbucks line, paying for the coffee for the person behind you, sending a Venmo to somebody that you really love to go on a date or to have some money to buy pair of shoes, whatever it is. Uh, What would it look like to give your resources and time to say, hey, I have time available. I'm going to help this person some way. I have this resource, this thing that other people need to use. I'm going to freely give it. I'm going to create a lifestyle that pushes against consumerism with the rhythm of blessing and being generous towards others. That's the first thing. How can you simply bless and upend the rhythm of life is about me and my consumer needs and desires? The second thing is this. And maybe not. It won't seem this way at first. But the rhythm of Sabbath, that last blessed bless rhythm. Walter Brueggemann, he wrote a really great book on Sabbath. He says this: In our contemporary context of the rat race of anxiety, Brueggemann is like a genius with words. In our contemporary context of the rat race of anxiety, the celebration of Sabbath isn't an is an act of both resistance and alternative. It is resistance because it is a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods. One day a week, if you chose to work, to rest and not work, to turn the email off of your phone and delete it. One day a week if you chose, "Hey, I can wait to purchase that thing on Amazon till tomorrow." One day a week if you chose not to try to get ahead, but simply enjoy God and enjoy neighbor, it's an act of resistance to the god of consumerism that seeks to destroy and enslave us to bless, and to Sabbath. Here's the second God. It's the God of deconstructionism. Deconstructionism. Big word. Let me explain it. Uh, I've been reading a book lately called Cynical Theories, and it describes in this book three French philosophers who have shaped most of what postmodernism is today. One of the guys' name is Jacques Derrida, and he actually came up with this term deconstruction. And basically, these French philosophers rejected all sense of meta-narrative, all sense of societal norms or traditions or history. We want to define it by individual preference and desire and then put people in groups by preferences and desire. So then war against others. Whether you realize it or not, deconstructionism has pervaded all of our lives. All of our lives. All of us want to push against and have this deep longing and desiring us to push against anything that might constrain us in any way anything that might anchor us and that would maybe uh, have a delayed gratification for our happiness and fulfillment, that is, in a sense, in our culture, the enemy. Nothing prevents me from getting what I want. It's crazy. This thing, deconstructionism, has promised freedom and liberation, but it's created a pandemic of isolation and loneliness. I saw this stat recently. One in four Americans... One in four Americans say that they have nobody they can confide anything in. They have no close friends. Think about your neighborhood right now, on your street, wherever you live. Think about every fourth house being a house that nobody in that house, or a person in the house, has nobody they can confide in. They have no relationships that have any value or meaning. What was supposed to create freedom and liberation has created isolation and loneliness. So if this God, deconstructionism, seeks to enslave and destroy us, how can we push, in, in a sense, by the Spirit, resist it? I'm going to give you two more rhythms from the blessed rhythms. The first one is eat, and the second one is speak. Let me explain. Eat. In a culture where it's easier to just get on the Postmates app and order some food to be delivered to your house and turn on Netflix, it's an act of resistance to actually create and cultivate a meal to then go share it with others like at a missional, a missional community meal that we most of us celebrate every week. In a culture of deconstruction, reconstructing, putting together this meal for the good of your neighbor is an act of resistance. To eat with people. Maybe you don't realize this, but to eat with people regularly, that people don't do that in our culture. If one in four feel like they have nobody to confide in, there's a good chance a lot of people are experiencing a great deal of loneliness and separation and isolation. So eat. The second one is this, speak. And let me flip it a little bit. It's not that I need you to to speak out against it and maybe push against it. Maybe that's good. But to share life with a community of people and have them speak into your decision-making, to speak into your rhythms and practices. There's this really dirty word that nobody likes to use in our culture. It's the word submit. But if you want to be radical in our culture, in a culture of deconstructionism, the most radical thing you could do is to submit your life to a community of people that are following Jesus. To submit submit your decision-making, the big decisions of your life, to a community of people that can speak into your desires and longings. To not just be swayed by your own desires and things that you want and your preferences, but to let other people lead you in that. Like that is an act of resistance in a culture that says, no, I'm going to choose my own thing I'm not going to share with anybody else eating and speaking in a sense are acts of resistance against the God of deconstructionism okay lastly the last God there's many other gods but let me give you this last one the last God would be the God of ethnocentrism ethnocentrism let me define it for you from the the dictionary belief in the inherent superiority of one's ethnic group or culture Belief in the inherent superiority of one's ethnic group or culture. All of us live in Western culture, a culture that has a pervasive influence over all of the world. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Western culture, in many ways, has saturated the rest of the world for, in a sense, what is the good life. Now, don't hear me, don't hear me wrong. Western culture, in many ways, was seasoned with Christianity and has brought an incredible amount of good to the world because of its salting with Christianity, because of its vision of human life and human dignity. But often in Western culture, with this, in a sense, superiority mindset, we have blind spots that we're unaware of that other cultures could actually speak into, that could showcase to us things that we've actually missed of what it looks like to have the good life. So again, don't get stuck in this dualistic thinking where it's either all or nothing. Either Western culture is all bad or it's all good. But have a threefold vision of a creational good of culture. What's good about this culture? How has it been distorted by sin? And then thirdly, how is Jesus redeeming this culture and restoring it? But like with every culture, every culture has blind spots. So here's my, here's my act of resistance. If you're going to try to disarm and destroy ethnocentrism that has a hold in our lives. The simple act of listening to somebody you disagree with, not for rebuttal, not to prove them wrong, but to simply listen as a learner, is an act of resistance against the God of ethnocentrism. How our social media is set up, how our communities are formed, often is just an echo chamber of our own preferences and desires but to say, no, I'm actually going to pursue this person that I know I disagree with, not to then rebut them or to then talk badly and slander them after I leave that coffee or lunch or that book I just read, but I'm going to listen as a learner, is an act of resistance, knowing that there's something what this person is sharing that is a creational good that might be a blind spot of mine from my own cultural standing and status. Listen as one of those blessed rhythms. Bless, listen, eat, speak, Sabbath. That are acts of resistance against the gods of our culture of consumerism, deconstructionism, and ethnocentrism. Here's what I want you to do turn to the people around you that you just turned before, and you're just gonna, this is gonna be really practical. Hey, think through those rhythms this week. How are you gonna actually practice those things? Who are you going to bless? Who are you going to listen to, or maybe some ideas you have there? Who are you gonna spend time with eating a meal and crafting something to share? Who are you gonna have speak into your life with maybe a big decision you have to make soon? And then lastly, how are you going to Sabbath this week? All right, turn the people around you and then we'll close all together. Ready, set, go. All right, at least you maybe had a chance hopefully to share with one person at least one of your rhythms this week how you're going to bless, listen, eat, speak, and Sabbath. Let me close this today thinking about Jesus as he came today on Palm Sunday riding not on a horse but a donkey into the greatest empire of his time, Rome. Coming in many ways to resist the empire worship and the culture that he was in, to provide an alternative way to experience the good life that comes through death and resurrection. Colossians 2 says that Jesus came to disarm the powers and principalities of our world, these different gods that in a sense seek to enslave and destroy us. To the God of consumerism, Jesus comes to us and says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To the God of deconstructionism, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If anyone should not have to submit to a community of people, it was Jesus. And yet Jesus took the posture of a servant born in the likeness of man, gave himself to death on a cross so that he might be resurrected and have the name above all names. God in Jesus has conquered deconstructionism. And lastly with our ethnocentrism and our ideas and desires to in a sense exclude others from some sense of superiority, Jesus' table that we come celebrate every week is a place for all to belong. No matter what tribe, class, race, no matter what struggle you carry, no matter where you're at, his table is open every week. And Jesus invites us to this table to destroy the ethnocentrism that so easily fills our hearts, not for the sake of uniformity, but unity in the midst of diversity. That's what he does at his table. And so we come each week to this table Remember that in Jesus' death and resurrection, he has offered us forgiveness of sins. He has offered us to be reconciled to God so that we might come to him and live a life of resistance against the dominant gods of our culture. So would your first step of resistance in a moment be as we stand to come to this table as an act of resistance to the gods of our culture to say, no, I serve this one king. He's invited me and I invite others to come with me. And then he has sent me back into the world to live a life that is an alternative to the dominant gods and stories of our day. So would you please stand with me? I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians to prepare us for the table, and I'm going to have you recite with me, which is on your handout, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord, which I also passed on to you, this confession of faith, this mystery of our faith. Say it with me. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Come to the table, the gifts of God for the people of God.